Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we open our Bibles, we open our hearts. We pray that you would help us to grow in our knowledge of you. And as we yield our lives to your Holy Spirit, help us to know you better so that we might love you more. Help us to love you more so that we might obey your word and help us to obey your word so that we would truly abide in Christ. And as we abide in Christ, may our lives bear lasting fruit for your glory. Free us from any distractions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so before we dive into John 18, let me just set the stage for our study. John has spent the last five chapters, chapters 13 to 17, in the upper room with his disciples. Everything in those chapters occurred in one place, in one room. And I think Warren Wearsby does a good job kind of explaining and summarizing Jesus's main message to his disciples after Judas had left that room. So Jesus shares with them the secret of life. If someone were to ask you, what is the secret of life? What would you say? Well, Jesus prepared his disciples for that because he said that the secret to life is bearing fruit. Jesus said in John 15, 8, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so proved to be my disciples. He also went on and said in, in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. But that leads us to another question. If bearing fruit is the secret to life, well, what is the secret to bearing fruit? Well, Wearsby points out that Jesus told his disciples the secret to bearing fruit is abiding. Abiding in Christ means allowing his word to fill our minds, direct our wills, and transform our affections. Jesus said, abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay, well, if the secret to life is bearing fruit and the secret to bearing fruit is abiding, well, what's the secret to abiding? Jesus told his disciples. He says the secret to abiding is obeying, obedience. Jesus said, if you keep my commands, you will abide in my love, as I have kept my father's commands and abide in his love. So you can see this one question, what is the secret of life, turns into five questions. So what is the secret to obeying? The secret to obeying is loving. Love is what leads us to obedience. 
Jesus said in John 14, and this is all from these chapters before, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then in John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I too will love him and manifest myself to him. And then 1 John 5, 3 says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So finally, what is the secret to loving? The secret to loving, Wearsby suggests, is knowing. Jesus prayed, and this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Think about the Great Commission for a minute. What is the Great Commission? It's to do what? Make disciples. Make disciples. Well, how do you make disciples? You make disciples by helping others to know God, to love him, to obey him, to abide in him, and bear fruit for his glory. The lasting spiritual fruit is the lives that have been forever changed by the gospel. So that's the context of our study this morning. So we see that the secret of life is really five secrets. By knowing God, we come to love him. And by loving him, we will choose to obey him. And by obeying him, we will abide in him. And by abiding in him, we will bear lasting fruit. That brings us to chapter 18. Jesus and the remaining disciples leave the upper room, and then all the dominoes begin to fall. And we're going to look at that this morning. So read along with me. John chapter 18, the first 11 verses. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew that place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of all those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? Wow. Big changes happen when we get to chapter 18. They go from being in one room, having this really important conversation, and then dominoes start to fall. So when Jesus crossed the, the brook, Kidron, the water of that brook would have been red due to the blood of the thousands of lambs that were sacrificed that day. 
And I wonder if Jesus saw that blood and thought of his own innocent blood that would soon be shed for our sins. And it says that Jesus went to a garden, and we know that that was the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus went right where Judas was expecting him to go because Jesus wanted to be found by Judas. He knew this was all part of God's plan. Judas came not only with a band of soldiers, we're not sure how many, but we know that it could have been as many as hundreds of troops. But he also came with some temple security force. Did you notice that? It wasn't just Roman soldiers. There was also a group of Jewish soldiers. Judas misunderstood both the nature of Jesus and the power of Jesus. Think about what we have here for a second. Sinless man is in an appointed garden and was about to do battle with Satan's representative. Does that sound familiar? Well, in a couple of weeks, we're going to begin looking at Genesis, and we're going to see that the first time that this happened, the human race fell in the Garden of Eden, fell into sin. But this time, God is going to take it back. And God is going to make sure that this sinless man wins the battle. Because like my friend Jim mentioned last week, there is no plan B. So Jesus makes it clear to us that he was a volunteer, not a victim. Did you notice that? He wasn't in the back shrinking. He, he came forward. He, he made it very clear in these verses that he was a volunteer, not a victim. He was going to voluntarily lay down his life once and for all for the sins of the world. Look at verses four, four and five. Then Jesus knew all that was going to happen to them came forward. Again, he came forward, not as a victim, but as a volunteer. And he said, who do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Did you read what Jesus said next? Actually, he didn't say, I am he. The Greek says, he said, I am. He said, I am. Jesus clearly identified himself as God in the flesh. And those who heard those two words felt the power of God knock them to the ground. Did you notice that? That must have been a fascinating thing to watch. I mean, that whole crowd that was there fell to the ground when he said, I am, because of the power of those words, which I'll, I'll talk more about in a second. But did you notice Simon Peter's courage? I heard a guy say recently that, in heaven, there's going to be a long line out of Simon Peter's uh, house of pastors apologizing because of how many times they threw Peter under the bus for his lack of courage. But if you put yourself in Peter's position, he was very courageous. I mean, he brought a sword with him. He was a good fisherman, but a really poor swordsman. Thank God, right? And it was a good thing he was a poor swordsman. Because if he wasn't, there might have been four crosses on that next day, because that would be a capital offense. When Jesus said, I am, to that crowd, it harkens back to what God told Moses to say to the Israelites when they asked him, who, who sent you? God told Moses to tell the Israelites, I am has sent me, Moses, to you. So. Very, very significant. 
some people will tell you, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, right here, he claimed to be God. And actually, they felt the power of that. So we go on in verses 12 to 18. We learn that Jesus doesn't resist being arrested, but goes voluntarily. And he faces the first of what will turn into six unfair trials. And meanwhile, while Peter does his best to stay near Jesus, again, an act of courage, he ends up denying Jesus when John speaks to a servant girl who's guarding the door to the courtyard to let Peter in. This is the first of, of what will be three denials of Peter. So I'm not going to spend much time here, but I just wanted you to sh share this with you. Jesus ends up experiencing six trials, and they're, they're kind of up on the screen. The first three trials were kind of religious trials in front of the chief priests, but then he moves on to, to three civil trials in front of Rome, in front of Pilate. And if you like John, and we've talked about this in the last couple of weeks, there's a lot of references to the number seven. You can make it seven trials because we can all include that there's, there's an ongoing trial cosmic or universal trial that continues to this day as every individual on earth must decide what to do with Jesus. Could I have a volunteer read this next section? John chapter 18. Okay, Big Dan. John chapter 18, verses 19 to 27. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret, so why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. So in these verses, look at verse 21. He says, why do you ask me? Ask those who heard what I, what I said to them. In saying this, Jesus wasn't being uncooperative. He was only asserting his legal right. There was to be no formal charge against an accused until witnesses had been heard and been found truthful. That's why Jesus said that. And then we also learn in these verses of Peter's second and third denials. And now we get to see Jesus is going to be taken before Pilate. When I, when I first saw this picture, if you look at Pilate, doesn't it kind of look like he's checking his texts or playing a game on his cell phone? It's, it's foreshadowing in some ways. So, Big Dan, can you continue reading verses 28 to 32? Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. 
by now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute him. They objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. And then, Mike, can you bring the mic up to Doug Allen? Because I have a question for Doug. And so, Doug, instead of you asking me a question, I'm asking you a question. Yes, look, at, look at verse 28. At verse 28, it says, They led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. This is like an apparent contradiction because didn't Jesus eat the Passover? So a lot of people look at this verse and they say, well, look, the Bible's full of contradictions. I mean, Jesus already ate the Passover with his disciples and the Jews are saying they haven't even eaten it yet. How do you explain that, Doug? What are, you, what are your thoughts? <laughs> Any thoughts? I, that I've never thought of. I mean, that, that's uh, interesting because, yeah, the night before Christ had celebrated the Passover, so I don't know where that were was Christ celebrating early or were they celebrating late? I'm going to say Christ was probably celebrating early. Right. Okay. Well, let me, let me help you fill you in. And I didn't know either. So okay. just to be fair. So, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just in fun. I'm, I'm putting you on the spot like this. So you enjoy um, it. <laughs> we, we learned, we learned the answer to this according to Josephus because Josephus tells us that the Jews that were in Galilee a different part of Israel, the northern part, began their day from sunrise to sunrise. But the Jews in Jerusalem, the more Orthodox Jews, reckoned time from sunset to sunset, which means the Galileans could eat the Passover one night before the Judeans. And actually, it works out well because there's so many people in Jerusalem and so many sacrifices that have to be made on the temple that it helps with the volume problem because Josephus recorded that in one Passover, over 250,000 lambs were slaughtered at the temple. And so you couldn't do all that in one day. So you, you needed more than one day. So that's the answer to the question. But people love to pick these kind of things and say, oh, look, the Bible's full of all kinds of contradictions. Okay, Doug has a comment. In the film... Fiddler on the Roof. In there is a song that's, that is sunrise, sunset, or sunset, sunrise, which makes sense that goes along with what you're saying. So I'm saying even the Jews now will start at sunset. And when sunset starts, that's when the Sabbath or the or at that time Passover would be until the next sunset. That's good. Greg? So, yes. The Passover fits in beautifully because it is it is not on the Sabbath. But as you remember, when Joseph and Nicodemus go to claim the body, it's three in the afternoon, and they're going to try and get him buried before sunset because the Passover starts in a couple of hours. Doesn't that also mean that when Jesus was dying on the cross as the Lamb of God, that lambs were being slaughtered? 
and on the temple at that same time. So while the lambs were being slain, the lamb of God was being slain once for all for the sins. Now look at verse 28. It says, this is, this is really interesting about the Jews, the Jewish leaders, I should say. It says, they themselves did not want to go to the praetorium lest they should be defiled. Here you see something kind of interesting. The Jewish leaders refused to break a relatively small command regarding the ceremonial defilement, but then they broke a much greater command in rejecting God's Messiah and condemning an innocent man to death. Consider the sad irony of this. They take elaborate precautions to avoid ritual contamination in order to eat the Passover. At the very same time, they are busy manipulating the judicial system to secure the death of the one who alone is the true Passover. Norman. Speaking of the law, it was against the Jewish law to trial a man on the first day he's arrested and also at night. And they broke those laws also. Yep. Good, good comments. Okay, let's continue on. Big Dan, can you keep reading? Chapter 18, verses 33 to 40, please. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own ideal, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. This is a fascinating conversation between Pilate and Jesus. And we're going to see that Pilate is, he really doesn't want to deal with Jesus. And he definitely doesn't want to be the one who decides to put him to death. So Pilate's question, what is truth? We could spend the whole hour and 15 minutes on that. What is truth? Because it's been asked by philosophers for ages and ages. But let's remember what Jesus said about truth. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I and the truth. And then in John 17, 17, he says that your word is truth. And in 1 John 5, 6 states the spirit is truth. The spirit and the word point us to Christ, who is the truth. Okay, let's keep, keep going. Maybe, uh, Ray, could you read the next section? Chapter 19, verses 1 to 11. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. 
Then they clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him and again and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to him, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. So in this section, we see that it seems that, G, that, that Pilate thought that scourging Jesus, which, by the way, was illegal, <laughs> would move the hearts of the Jews enough that they would want to just see him released. But their hearts continue to be hard, and they were determined to destroy Jesus. But why did Christ not answer Pilate's question in verse 9? For one thing, Pilate had not obeyed the truth that he had already received. And so God does not reveal more truth until we obey the truth that's already given. And then we see Pilate's boast in verse 10, which is really a sentence of his own condemnation. If he did have the authority to release Christ and knew that Christ was innocent, then Pilate should have set him free. And Jesus rebukes Pilate and reminds him that all authority comes from God. So what becomes clear is that Pilate doesn't want to sentence Jesus to death. Let's continue on. Ray, you want to pick up in verse 12 to 16? From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down at the judge's seat at a place known as a stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So what's interesting here is in the book of John, they're saying here, we have no king but Caesar. That was their cry. But if you look back in John chapter 6, verse 15, the Jews wanted to make Christ king at that time. And then in John 12, 13, they hailed him as a king. But now they've rejected him. 
This is what you could call the third crisis in John's gospel. Ray, continue on in verse 17 to 22. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the people read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Pilate says, what I have written, I have written. In another ironic twist, you might say that Pilate had the last word, for he wrote the title on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. It was customary for a Roman prisoner to wear his accusation on a placard above his head on the cross. And Christ's crime was that he made himself king. And commentators have suggested that the three languages, it was written in three different languages, represented the three great areas of human life. Religion, the Hebrews, philosophy and culture, written in Greek, and law, written in Latin. This title also suggests the universal sin. These three great nations of the world participate in his, in his death. Religion, philosophy, and law will not save lost sinners. So in this next section, in verses 28 to 37, we see glimpses of how horrible of a death Jesus would endure on the cross. Jesus speaks from the cross seven different times, and here we have two of the times that he, that he speaks. He says, I thirst, and then he says, Tedlestai, it is finished. He dies before his legs need to be broken, but he finished the work that he came to do. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode, and remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace, and on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.